Hello, and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Tools and Tips series. Welcome to Codish. My name is Julian Duque. I'm a developer advocate at Heroku. And today we are going to be continuing talking to Parker Feeney from Interview Cake about the Interview Cake platform and one of the challenges they had while translating the code content into multiple programming languages. So today we have our Parker Feeney from Interview Cake that is going to tell us everything about the whole day crowdsourced the whole translation team and made it possible to have support of multiple programming languages in the Interview Cake platform. Hello, Parker. Welcome again. Hey, thanks for having me back. Yes. You were mentioning of our previous episode about the different interview questions and programming exercise that you had in your platform and that every question changed when you select a new programming language. Can you explain that a little bit more yeah. to our listeners what we are talking about? Totally. Maybe I should step back first and just briefly, um, for people who didn't hear the previous episode, explain what Interview Cake is. So uh, Interview Cake is a website that has an online course that prepares software engineers for uh, coding interviews. In, in particular, uh, we help people get better at solving uh, tricky data structures and algorithms type coding interview questions. So as part of that, we have a bunch of tutorials where we explain various data structures and algorithms, and we also have a lot of practice questions. And those, uh, both of those bits of content, the tutorials and, and the questions, as you can imagine, have a mix of text and code samples. And so when we started off, we wanted those code samples to be uh, accessible to as many people as possible. Um, one of the other kind of main sets of resources in, in our space, in the coding interview prep space, um, are books. But what can be tricky is, you know, the book is in a fixed form. And so when there's a code sample, they have to pick a programming language. And um, a lot of resources uh, will pick Java, which um, tends to be pretty um, ubiquitous. But if, if, you're, um, if you're not super comfortable with Java, it makes that content pretty hard to, to access for you. Um, and so we had a unique opportunity with Interview Cake because it's a website, you know, it's, it's hypertext, so the document can change. So we set out to, to try to make our uh, content available in all kinds of different programming languages. We, we support 10 different ones today. And as we started to kind of uh, think about this project, we quickly realized that um, a couple things. The first is, if we're going to add, say, PHP to our set of languages that we support, it's important that um, the PHP code is not just correct, right? Like it, it gives the correct answer and runs without errors and all that stuff. Um, but also it has to be well-formed, stylistically sound PHP. PHP is not 
maybe the most opinionated language, but um, I think they're uh, maybe Objective C is a more opinionated language. Maybe that's a better example. We're also kind of rubbing up against the, the other thing that that we realized, which is, you know, if if we're going to be writing this stuff, as I said, it needs to be not just correct, but but good and well styled. And on our team, we didn't have experts in all these languages, so we had this tricky problem of how do we find people who are um, real experts in each of these languages and can make good like educational code samples because you know it's one thing for a person to say they're an expert but you want to interview them and and confirm that and if you're not an expert yourself how do you how do you evaluate so this this problem of bootstrapping expertise um, was really kind of a sticking point for us so that's where we got really clever so what we did was we hired um, six different engineers on Upwork to do a test task. Um, And the test task was to, for any given language, say PHP, uh, we will will repeat this process for each language. Um, So for PHP, for example, we hire six different people to translate one code sample from Python to PHP. And then, this is where it gets interesting, we hired six different um, PHP engineers to rate those six translations. And we explained to both cohorts that what we were really looking for was well-styled PHP code that's not just correct, but very readable and adheres to PHP standards, or I think in the case of PHP, a specific set of PHP standards uh, and stuff like that. So um, then we take the six translations and the six reviews, and whoever got the best reviews uh, we hire that person to be our translator. But then we also look at the six reviewers and whoever was the most thorough reviewer had the most notes and seemed to find um, the most tiny details. Um, we also hire them to be the reviewer of the translator's translations as they go through our content and translate it into the new language, in this case, PHP. So in this way, we we have two sets of eyes on on everything. That's how we bootstrapped expertise in in PHP and almost a dozen other different languages. Yeah. What was the first uh, programming language you supported or had content in your platform? Uh, good question. It was it was Python, and that's mostly because Python was my most comfortable language. But this is um, it's a good question because early on there was a, this struggle where um, I. The code was Python, but I thought, because I had an eye towards this thing of like, I want this to be accessible to everybody. So I was like, well, why don't I do this? Why don't I say it's pseudocode, but it happens to be runnable Python. So if you know Python, it's going to be correct and you can run it. But so I would do these things where um, if there was something that was sort of python uh, a specific Python idiom that would be a little opaque if you weren't a Python person, uh, I wouldn't use that idiom to try to make it as readable to everyone as possible. So the upshot was for people who didn't know Python, the content was a little more accessible. But to people who did know Python, they were a little confused. They were like, why are you doing this? Why are you writing like C code in Python? You should be using a list comprehension here or 
whatever the kind of idiom was that that would be more Pythonic. And so we realized that we really couldn't have it both ways and we had to support each language individually. Yeah, for me, I I was also going through some uh, technical interviews. I'm a JavaScript developer, but pretty much the content I was finding out there to prepare for interviews was Java. And it's yeah. very hard to do like a direct translation from one code to the other. Even though you are solving the same problem, you are, you are reaching out to... Uh, the same result, the way of solving the problem in each different language is going to be sometimes way different. Like, as as you say, yeah. you have idioms, you have, uh, in Java, for example, you have generics, you have, like, certain specific class to represent uh, the data structures, while in JavaScript, you don't have those. You will mm-hmm. need to implement certain classes to make it look like Java code. And at the end, you are so confused because you are ending writing Java in JavaScript. Right. Totally. Yeah. So that's pretty much the approach you follow here What's to be able not to translate just the problem, but also the code to look like a semantic use of that programming language. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and you you bring up a great point. Sometimes the code is going to look very different in these different languages. And so take list comprehensions, for example. You know, it's um, a tool in um, Python. I believe Ruby has it as well. I'm I'm sure a a few different uh, more scripty languages do. And it's very powerful, and it allows you to compress what would in Java or C be a loop into just one line. So it's idiomatic and it's powerful, but it also, if you have that one line list comprehension in uh, in Python, there's a specific kind of pedagogical moment there where um, it's important to teach, especially if um, the, the candidate is a little bit new to thinking about data structures and algorithms, it's important to explain to them that under the hood, there's a loop here, right? So this one liner, you don't see a loop, but there's O of N time or O of N work that's happening here. And that's a little bit of education that you have to do when the language is set to Python that you don't have to do when the language is set to Java because you can see the work right there in Java. So this leads me to, to something that um, is a little bit, um, was a big kind of monkey wrench when we went to do this translation project, which is that not only does the code have to change, but the the educational content around the code uh, in a lot of cases also has to change when you move from Python to Java. So um, not only did we translate the code samples for each write-up and, and each question, um, but we also go through the whole write-up and we add or remove whole um, sentences and, and whole paragraphs so that we're teaching as closely as possible to that specific language. So let's say if I'm going to select JavaScript and my algorithm can use, uh, let's say, the filter function over an array, you are going to be explaining that extra part in the content. Exactly. Like that filter, it's going to be doing a loop and doing like certain operations. Exactly. Now that's, that's very interesting because I had, an experience interviewing with a company 
they let me choose JavaScript because it is my uh, language of choice. And while I was solving the exercise, I tried to use uh, array functions and other certain APIs that are available to me as a JavaScript developer, but they discouraged me to do that. Mm. They told me, no, why you don't write C-style code mm -hmm. with JavaScript? Mm -hmm. So it was kind of... Uh, a different experience. So how can you uh, also prepare that person to be able to write that type of simplified code without using the specific APIs? Can you show also like alternatives? Yeah, well, the, we do We do have some people, this, this isn't something that we necessarily encourage, but it can be interesting. We have some people who say that they um, do each question in two different languages because they're trying to get stronger at, at one language or they're interested to see the differences between the two. It's certainly something that you can do. Uh, that example of list comprehensions, I think, is a good one. Um, again, if, if you're writing code in Java or C, it tends to be pretty explicit. And so you can really kind of see what's going on under the hood, um, what the kind of uh, exactly what the time and space costs are in your code. Whereas if you're using one of these higher level, more scripty languages, you know, a lot can be buried in a, in a one-liner. So we do spend a lot of time in those languages specifically teaching people how to uh, understand that in that one-liner, there's this underlying stuff. So we do, and, and we do sometimes um, actually go through the process of saying like, okay, this you know, this one liner, you could rewrite it as this loop. And so now, you know, you, sh you can use the one liner when you're writing code, but in your head, there should always be like a part of your mind that sees that loop under the hood so that you're really getting a full picture of what the efficiency and the time and space costs are of your code. Uh, interesting. So you, you were telling me that you started with six people that were doing the translation Yep. and other six people that started rating the translation. Yep. What what happened next? How you started to scale up this process to support 10 languages? Yeah, so we would do that process. It wasn't always six and six, but something like that. We would do that process for, for each language. And after, um, and th this was a um, very brilliant um, uh, former member of the team. His name is Noah. He ran this process a, a couple of times himself, um, and he would kind of make up a spreadsheet, and uh, he really kind of got the the process dialed in. And and once once we got there's a whole you know one of the in my opinion kind of most fun steps was once we had the six and six the six translations and the six reviews, we would print them all out and uh, sit down in a conference room. And uh, and and mark them up, and you know, figure out which which person we wanted to hire from from each cohort. So once that process was really dialed in, uh, Noah had um, our virtual assistant uh, manage the process. Um, so she was able to set up the uh, the job listings and open the contracts with all the candidates and deliver them the task. And so basically, the deliverable then for Noah and I was. Um, was just uh, the the PDF of, of all of the code samples. And we were able to, to kind of take it from there. So once we have our two people, 
um, for each language. Um, we had a whole system where we set them up on uh, Asana and we would give them, um, you know, their first thing to translate so that they got comfortable with, with our stack and, you know, they could get the development server running and all that stuff. And then we gave them their next like five things to translate. And then we would keep a close eye on the first ones to make sure that they were paying attention to the details and following our conventions and stuff like that. And then eventually we would just kind of let them loose and say, okay, now go, go translate all the rest of the stuff. Nice. And what other tools did you use uh, to achieve this coordination of work? It was tricky. And, and Noah was the one who was really running this process. And um, he handed it off to me um, when he moved on to, to his next opportunity. And I, I have to admit, I, I didn't do as good of a job keeping things organized because it, it was a lot of people and a lot of details. But it was a mix of Asana spreadsheets and um, GitHub uh, bugs and um, GitHub tasks. And also the GitHub wiki we used a lot for um, early on for a new language, uh, really cementing what the conventions would be. So some languages are, I think Python's a pretty good example. Python is pretty opinionated about you know what's Pythonic, what's the right way to do something. But then there are some languages where um, there are a lot of different ways to do things. Um, and so different companies will write their own specific style guides. And we would really get into the details of even, you know, like, how do you indent curly braces? Do you put a blank line after the parentheses before the opening curly brace in a if statement in, you know, JavaScript or Java or something? All that stuff, we would get that all standardized so that it was all the same, and we would write up all those rules and put them on our GitHub wiki so that we had a spot that was kind of the the sole source of truth on what we wanted our code to look like. And how you test the solutions? Uh, how how are you making sure those are going to be valid? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a good question. So yeah, there, there's a lot of tech behind the hood that makes all this stuff work. Yeah, lots to talk about. So, so for that specific question, each code sample um, under the hood, right next to the code sample in each of the 10 languages, you can put a test for that code sample. So if it's a full solution to a problem, you can write a bunch of test cases that a solution will, will run through. Um, if it's something that's more like just a, um, you know, indexing into an array and setting a variable to something, you know, just like a little two line thing, we'll still actually run that code and confirm that it runs. And in the case of like Java, like compiles without error. Um, so yeah, we have a lot of tech that allows us to, uh, actually run each of our code samples and confirm that that they're uh, outputting the right answer. Nice. And how do you maintain right now the current content you have? Do you need to go through the same process of finding people out there or you already have like established team and experts in every language to take care of the maintenance? Yeah, you know, this is um, something that's actually been a bit tricky for us. Um, this process was very expensive, um, much more expensive than, than we thought it would be. And we did it kind of all at once. 
Uh, we went through and translated the content into as many languages as we could. And then each of those teams uh, kind of finished translating all the content. And so we, we closed the contracts because we, we um, didn't need help with translation anymore. Um, and for a while, we were focused on a few things other than content. We were building some new features and, and stuff like that. More recently, we've picked up some more content stuff. And one, uh, one of the challenges is going to be retranslating that content because I'm sure um, some people that we've worked with that have done great work will be able to work with again. I'm sure some others are not going to have bandwidth anymore because they're busy with other projects or um, maybe not be on the platform anymore. So um, the Upwork platform, that is. So we, we did also find that there were a couple of people who, um, after they finished their work, this is also part of why we closed the contracts, there are a couple people who um, were sort of bad actors who um, continued to bill um, even though there really wasn't any any work left to to be done, so um, and that was also sort of on on us for kind of not keeping a closer eye on on what was going on. So the bottom line for for us is that one thing that we've learned is um, this process uh, we think so far is kind of best done as like spin up, get all the work done, spin down, and so now we have some new content that's kind of in the pipeline. And we're waiting to kind of finish that. And then we'll go through, spin up the translation team, do all the translations, and then spin that team down and release the content. So it's added quite a bit of friction. Um, but that's that's sort of the process that we've, we've settled into. Um, you know, this is something that we talk about a lot at Interview Cake, you know, because we could have just done, we could have just written pseudocode, right? We could have said, um, yeah, you know, this is the easiest way to make our content accessible to as many people as possible is we'll just, it's not real code. It's just pseudocode, right? Or we could have said like, well, it's Python. Yeah, like not everyone's going to fully understand it, but it's like pretty readable. So it's good enough, right? But for us, um, it's always worth spending the extra time and money to make our stuff even just a little bit more accessible to people because that's our focus is to be the most accessible, most clear um, platform in our space. So to us, it's worth it to spend the time and money. So if you, you say that you need to be doing this again uh, from the first process and the first time you did this translation, what you will do different this time? What you will change or what will you improve? So I, th I think the main thing is we um, we looked back at um, how often the reviewer suggested changes for different languages. And there were a couple where the reviewer wouldn't often find anything. And so we started to experiment a little bit towards the end with not having that second pair of eyes. Um, and then there were some other cases where the reviewer was suggesting a lot of edits And so we experimented with making just making them the translator in, instead. So that's something that uh, we might experiment with um, in the future is uh, having fewer people per language, especially in cases where we're able to work with someone we've worked with in the past who's shown like a lot of attention to detail. We might be able to kind of uh, trust them to to be the one set of eyes on a um, on a given a given language. 
did any of the people you hired temporarily to to do the translation and reviewing work stay at your team? Did you hire them full time or they just remained temporarily for that a specific project? Yeah, everyone stayed um, just just on a contract. Um, th- this was all uh, through Upwork, so there were people from all over the world. And um, actually, uh, Upwork, I think, does not allow you to like start working directly with uh, with people, or they have an embargo for a year or or something. Okay, got it. But it it, it was really cool to be working with people from from all over the world. We actually used to have a big map on the wall with pins with like uh, where each person was located and what their name was and and stuff. It's pretty cool to know that your uh, your website is being built by by people from all over. Nice. So. You you are like managing also different time zones. Yeah, the the, um, the work was not particularly synchronous, so the time zones didn't tend to to matter all that much. Although um, Noah would get on a, a call with just about everybody, so like scheduling that, you have to be conscious of time zones. And what was the hardest part of the whole project? I think the hardest part was just um, the management overhead. Uh, doing all the languages at once. We didn't quite do all of them at once, but at one point we had ramped up to like, we had a, a, a small team for I think like six or seven different languages at the same time, maybe more. And that's just a lot of people for one person to, to manage. So that was that was the biggest thing. And there's so many parts to that management. I mean, there's seeing progress, right? Like knowing where each team is, where they're stuck, if they're still moving forward. Also keeping track of how people are billing, if they're still working, if, if they're uh, overbilling, which unfortunately was, was the case in, in just a couple of cases. There are a lot of things to kind of keep an eye on. One thing I would do differently is um, build a little bit more internal tooling to give us better visibility into uh, what work's been done recently what works still needs to be done next, what the timeline is of what's happened so that we could see which teams were cruising and, and which ones were getting stuck. And any advice to a company that want to crowdsource expertise in different platforms, what they need to be taking care of when hiring external people to their teams, how to make sure the project is going to be successful? Yeah, we're big fans of this process of hiring several people to do uh, a first task and then um, opening an ongoing contract with um, the person who does the best work. Um, I've used this in my personal life for hiring a a piano teacher, for uh, hiring an, an Arabic teacher, um, even for finding a therapist, I did like five different first consultations, first sessions. Uh, and of course, you, you always uh, pay for, for their time. But it's, it's remarkable how much every time I run this kind of process, you know, there tends to be one person who is just far and away a better fit for what I'm looking for. And it's, 
so much better to be working with that person right away rather than kind of starting with the first person you talk to and then, you know, taking weeks and, you know, ending up in this place where you're like, uh, it's kind of okay. I don't know. It's like maybe someone would be a better fit, but I don't know if I want to look right. You know, running this process from the beginning of, um, working with, with a bunch of people and seeing who, who really works best. Um, I, I can't say enough about it. So it may be a little bit more expensive, but at least you know you have the right person to do the job. Totally. That's nice. Okay, this is very interesting what you are building and the approach you follow here. Um, wishing you the best for the next iteration of the content translation. Thank you. It seems that you, you have nailed down uh, the process that works for you. And I hope the listeners out there that are planning like also to bring uh, expertise from other uh, parts externally to their companies to work on projects can learn uh, something by following the process you, you did. I think it's a very good recommendation to be able to test different uh, personal approaches to see what is going to be the best fit for the specific project you are working on. Totally. Any other any other recommendation to the listeners before saying the goodbyes? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think exactly as you said, you know, wherever possible, see if you can work with a few people and and see who's the best fit. And the thing that was unique about this project is we weren't able to evaluate ourselves who was actually a good fit because, you know, we don't know what great PHP code looks like. So we were also able to hire people to make that evaluation. Um, so it's it's some tricky second order stuff. And again, it involves paying more people just to find who's the right fit. Um, but if you can afford it, and if you can figure out a clever way to to make it happen, uh, it uh, it worked for us. So. Okay, Parker, thank you very much for uh, telling us about this uh, project. I think it's a huge challenge and the approach you follow was uh, very interesting and i hope like all of our listeners uh, are going to learn how to also crowdsource expertise out there this was codish uh, my name is julian duque and we had parker Fini from interview cake with us today uh, thank you parker for all your uh, contributions and for your time thanks julian and hear us on our next episode of Codish. Thank you very much. Um, bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.